Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Palkaran. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Ayan Maharaj from the Vivekananda University on a, uh, a massive, exciting new publication on Vedanta, the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta, just out this year. Ayan, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So how was this project conceived? Like, how did you put together this this line of contributors? And, and, and really, what was the impetus of creating this handbook? Yeah, so um, in 2017, I attended a philosophy conference, the uh, American Philosophical Association Conference in Seattle, Washington. And there's a big room there where different publishers come to speak to potential authors. Um, so I was walking around. And I had this idea for an edited volume actually on something somewhat different. It was, my idea was, it would have been called something like Beyond Neovid. And the idea was actually quite different um, because one of my main research interests was modern Vedanta, like Swami Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo and Sri Ramakrishna. I had this idea that um, I would edit a volume which would sort of introduce a new scholarly paradigm for thinking about these modern Vedantic thinkers, and um, in polemical opposition to one of the dominant scholarly approaches to these thinkers, which is called the Neo-Vedantic paradigm, or Neo-Hindu paradigm, um, popularized by a famous German Indologist named Paul Hacker, and then developed by a number of his followers, uh, which is committed to certain uh, presuppositions, which I think are problematic. So it was a much narrower kind of scholarly project, and I approached the uh, commissioning editor in philosophy at Bloomsbury with this idea. Uh, her name is Colleen Kowalter. She's a wonderful person and a wonderful editor. And when she heard the idea, she was excited about it, but she said, you know what, what would be even more uh, valuable, I think, for the scholarly community would be if you first just edited a volume on Vedanta in general, and then you can do a second book project on, a, on this kind of uh, narrower scholarly project, but and that was the first. She put the idea into my head, actually. So I have to credit her with giving me that idea. And then I thought about it more, and I thought that was really a great idea. And there were a few reasons for that. But one of the main reasons why I thought that um, we need the scholarly community needed a full handbook on Vedanta is that what you'll find is in scholarship on Vedanta, ninety, at least um, up to let's say the year two thousand, maybe. 95 to 98% of the scholarship was actually on Advaita Vedanta, one particular tradition of Vedanta, at the expense of all of the other, most of the other philosophical traditions within Vedanta. So, Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, Madhva Vedanta, Achinta Veda Veda Vedanta, uh, many other traditions, Shutta Advaita Vedanta. And I felt that there was a real need uh, in scholarship for a handbook that actually addresses the whole range of philosophical traditions within the Vedantic school of philosophy. Um, and the project grew from there, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I currently have the pleasure of uh, teaching um, continuing studies learners at uh, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And one of the courses that I, I, I tutor is um, a course called Hindu Philosophy. It looks at Sankhyan and Vedanta, um, particularly Advaita, Dvaita and Vishishta Dvaita. For the Vedanta component, but there certainly is no shortage of interest in Vedanta. It's 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 fascinating discussions, and I'll certainly point students to this uh, phenomenal uh, new 
resource. Thank you. Now, now that you talk about some of the, the strands of Vedanta and the need for highlighting some, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the layer of the book or the, or the sections that the book is divided into? Sure. So um, let me, um, one way of, get, of answering that question is, is to start slightly indirectly. Um, let me put it to, so to me, there are four unique features of this handbook. Um, and each of these features relates to how I structured the handbook. That's why you'll see the relevance to answer your question. So the first unique feature is that instead of just focusing on one particular tradition within Vedanta, it tries to take a more comprehensive approach and to cover, you know, uh, Advaita Vedanta, but alongside that, Vishta Advaita Vedanta, Madhu Vedanta, Shutta Advaita Vedanta, Ajita Vedanta, Nimbarka's um, uh, a different school of Veda Veda Vedanta, and so the whole range. Um, so that's one of the ways. So um, you'll find that. So the part one, it's, it's divided into five sections. And part one is called Classical Vedanta. And in that section, there are four chapters. And there's one chapter devoted to a particular philosophical tradition within Vedanta. So Neil Dalal's article is on uh, the concept of Nidhyasana in Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. Chapter two is written by a German scholar uh, named Maka Shmuka, and he's written on the concept of um, soul and knowledge in the Vishtadvaita tradition, so Ramanuja's tradition, but actually focusing on a later uh, thinker within the Vishtadvaita tradition, Venkatanatha. The third chapter is on Mato Vedanta, um, written by Michael Williams, and the fourth one, written by Ravi Gupta, is on Achinta Veda Vedanta, which is a tradition grounded in Chaitanya's teachings. The great avatar of big ball. Um, so that the first four chapters should give a sense to any reader of kind of how how broad the scope of the handbook is. But um, the second part of the handbook is called modern Vedanta. So there's a shift from what I call classical Vedanta to modern Vedanta, and the chapter. So chapter five is by Jeffrey Long, and he's written on Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy of, of Anekanta Vedanta. Stephen Phillips then writes on Sri Aurobindo's concept of the psychic being and his arguments in favor of reincarnation. Um, and I contributed a chapter on um, Romain Roland. He's, he had a very interesting epistolary debate with Sigmund Freud about mystical experience. And in the course of that debate, he appealed to the mystical experiences of Swami Vivekananda and Sri Ramakrishna. And it's quite interesting. Almost nobody knows about that debate. But in any case, the logic behind part one being on these kind of earlier um, thinkers within Vedantic traditions, classical Vedantins, and the, and the second part on modern Vedanta is that this brings me to the second main feature of the book, which is that I'm not, I'm not treating Vedanta as a kind of static tradition, but as a continually evolving and dynamic tradition. And so I wanted to register that even structurally by looking at, you know, how, for instance, Shankara might have been, you know, the, one of the most outstanding codifiers and early exponents of Advaita Vedanta, but the tradition didn't end with him and it evolved significantly after him. And so there are also uh, other chapters in the handbook that discuss later Advaita. So Ethan Mills in part five discusses Sri Harsha's Kandanakandakadi. He was an Advaita in, um, in the medieval period in Indian philosophy. And his Advaita is not the same as, as Shankara's. I and mean, obviously there's a kind of broad similarity in metaphysical commitments, but there are also relevant differences. And that's true of all the traditions. Every single tradition within Vedanta has evolved. And I wanted the handbook to reflect that 
evolution. So that's the second feature. So the first one is that it covers the whole range of Vedanta traditions. The second feature of this handbook is that it, it also tries to track to a certain extent the historical evolution and development of different Vedantic traditions. Um, the, the third unique feature is um, many scholars are aware, have read many handbooks and companions, whether they're Cambridge companions or Bloomsbury handbooks or um, Black, Wiley Blackwell has a huge number of these kind of Blackwell companions, right? Um, but each, I would say that, you know, there are different ways of thinking of the ontology of the handbook or of the companion. Um, and one way of conceiving the handbook is that it should, it should give a, 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 an expert introduction to a certain topic. But my ambitions were a bit uh, grander in a way. So um, what I envisioned for this handbook is that it would provide introductory overviews to different topics within Vedanta, but that in addition, I wanted each contributor, I wanted every chapter to make an original contribution to the existing scholarship. Uh, so that's a distinctive feature. I mean, you'll, what you'll find is that every single chapter, more or less, is making an original argument, a controversial argument uh, that's taking a stand on a particular issue or on a particular question. So just to give you one example, for instance, um, Clara Hedling, her chapter is um, discussing the concept of jivan mukti, liberation while living in the human body, in two philosophical traditions. So one of them is Advaita Vedanta, and the other is uh, Shaiva non-dualism, otherwise known as Kashmiri Shaivism. Um, so she's making a very interesting argument there that Advaita Vedanta, even though explicitly this tradition fully embraces the concept of liberation while living, it has difficulty at the philosophical level in justifying that concept. Whereas Shaiva non-dualism, because it affirms the reality of this world as a manifestation of Shiva, and it accepts the reality of Shakti, it's in a much better philosophical position to justify the doctrine of Jivan Mukti. So that's obviously a controversial and original argument. She provides you know, evidence in favor of it. So that's one example. But every chapter does that. There's a kind of original dimension to each chapter, which I think uh, adds value to the handbook. And I hope it does. Um, and the fourth key feature is the what I would call the cross-philosophical and cross-cultural dimensions of the handbook. So um, you'll find this throughout the handbook that there are a number of chapters which compare one or more Vedantic traditions with other philosophical schools. For instance, Nyaya. So Michael Williams um, discusses Madhva Vedanta in relation to Nyaya um, in his chapter um, on Vyasatita, who was a later Madhva thinker. Um, Ethan Mills also discusses Nyaya in relation to Sri Harshadadvata Vedanta. Um, uh, Francis Clooney, a professor at Harvard, um, his chapter compares Mimamsa with Advaita Vedanta. So that's, that, those would be kind of uh, chapters that venture into cross-philosophical territory. But the whole last part, part five of the handbook, is devoted to what I call cross-cultural explorations. And there, it's even more kind of... Um, uh, New, in a way, I mean, from a scholarly standpoint, um, what all three of the scholars in part five are doing. So the three scholars are Anand, Vaidya, Ethan Mills, and Arindam Chakraborty. All three of them are taking a cross-cultural methodological approach to Vedanta and comparing. So for instance, Anand Vaidya is focusing on this very, very interesting contemporary topic within the philosophy of mind called panpsychism, the view that consciousness is everywhere. 
and looking both at contemporary analytic philosophers of mind and what they have to say on the issue, and then comparing their ideas with ideas found in traditions of Vedanta, including Advaita Vedanta, uh, Vishuddha Vedanta, and Sri Ramakrishna's Vigyana Vedanta. Um, and Ethan Mills is looking at uh, Sri Harsha's Kandakandakadya. He was an Advaita Vedantin. He's looking at how um, his thinking uh, is in dialogue, or he tries to bring his thinking into dialogue with contemporary skepticism, contemporary views on skeptic skepticism. Um, and Aurindam Chakraborty is writing on a number of modern Vedantins, especially Swami Vivekananda and um, K.C. Bhattacharya, also in relation to contemporary analytic philosophy and even through the looking glass. So, I mean, um, I, this handbook is really wide ranging. And I think that's one of the strengths of the handbook. I was very interested to see your own contribution because at one point in my undergrad, I took a course called Freud on Religion and we looked at, I think, uh, Civilization and its Discontents and Fugitive Illusion. This was you know, eons ago. Um, and uh, I was really fascinated with the exchange between um, Freud and uh, Romain Roland. I actually well, did, I'm my, glad that you actually were familiar with it because a lot of... Yeah, uh, well, I know I was just, I, I didn't know about it, but I was so taken by it that I did my final assignment on it. And <laughs> strangely enough, I structured the, the essay as a conversation between the two. There would be conversation between the two. But I'm, I'm really fascinated by that figure. And I think... I think the exchange between the two is something worth mentioning in terms of any of the themes of, of Vedanta, of studying Vedanta, of, of Vedanta in the West. And so maybe you can tell us uh, um, about your contribution. Well, what happened between these two men and what are you looking at and what are you arguing in your in your chapter? Sure, yeah. So um, Romain Roland uh, was, of course, a, a celebrated French writer, novelist, um, so celebrated that he eventually won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And so Sigmund Freud deeply admired him, but he also respected him as a, as a human being. I mean, he was famous for his um, taking a moral stand on a number of important social issues at the time. Um, so there's a deep admiration and respect in both, on both sides. So that's how they, they kind of start an, ex an exchange. And at the same time that he started um, getting into this epistolary kind of conversation with Freud, Romain Roland had written had just written his biographies on Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. So he wrote a book called, in, in, in French, both the books were written in French, La Vie de Ramakrishna, The Life of Sri Ramakrishna, and um, a, a, a biography of Vivekananda as well. And not just a biography, but also kind of a reflection on many of his Vedantic ideas. And so what happened is in his, um, one of his letters to Freud, while, while he was writing these biographies, or maybe just after he'd written them, I think, um, he wrote to Freud, you know, I just read your book, Future of an Illusion, right? This book where Freud is kind of staunchly atheistic and attacking um, the idea of God and the idea of experiencing God in some kind of mystical state. And um, what Roland says is, you know, I, I find your criticisms of dogmatic religion quite persuasive, but I don't think you're being fair. I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't think you're being fair to... Um, those who ground their religiosity in their own direct experience, in what he calls the oceanic feeling. Um, and so he opens this can of worms by introducing the idea of oceanic feeling and also pushed Freud's buttons because in a, in a letter of response, Freud gets a little irritated and he says, in, in a kind of a condescending way, he says, oh, you know, I, I know all about that oceanic feeling. And he explains it in terms of, of a kind of infantile regression, as a, a regression to an infantile state. Where, where uh, 
you know, the baby feels at one with the mother in this in the state of the womb. Um, and Roland, uh, because he wasn't shy and he didn't stand, you know, stand down from a fight, he shot back by appealing to the examples of both Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, whom he had just written about. And he actually sent the biographies to Freud to read. And he said, please read these. And I hope th these books will convince you that mystical experience is not some kind of, um, you know, some immature state or um, a state in early infantile development, but a very mature state of a very high spiritual development. Um, and uh, the debate went on like that, but Freud didn't budge. And Roland made some really interesting critical remarks, almost, I mean, basically turning the tables on psychoanalysts like Freud, where, where psychoanalysts like Freud and Ferdinand Mohel, who was a French uh, scholar, he, he wrote his whole doctoral dissertation doing a kind of psychoanalytic study of many famous mystics, especially in Christian traditions. Roland had read that, that uh, dissertation of Mohel's and in the appendix to his biography of Vivekananda, he attacks it. He attacks that psychoanalytic approach to mysticism from a Vedantic standpoint and argues that actually psychoanalysts have a lot to learn from mystics, not the other way around. And so mystics don't need to be sort of diagnosed or kind of put on the couch by psychoanalysts, but it's actually psychoanalysts that can be, you know, kind of more deeply analyzed by mystics in a number of ways. So that's kind of the, the dialectic that I um, explore in my chapter. And you also asked about, well, what, what's the original component? One of the original things is, I don't know if you're aware, there's a book published maybe um, 10 or 15 years ago by William Parsons called The Enigma of the Oceanic Feeling. Um, the whole book is centered around this debate between Romero Roland and Sigmund Freud, but his approach is very different. And he, the lesson that he takes from this debate is that what Roland is advocating is what he calls a mystical psychoanalysis. And he takes, interestingly, it's not a term that Roland ever actually used, but he, he makes it seem as if it, if it is. Um, and what ended up happening, I think, is that there's one standard English translation of Roland's biographies of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. And there's a mistranslation of the French term, which basically actually literally means mystical psychopathology. And it was used in one very specific context in a footnote in Roland's biography of Ramakrishna, where he says Ramakrishna was famous for transmitting spirituality through touch, just from like touching somebody's shoulder or chest he could give them some spiritual experience. And so he referred to that whole area of investigation as mystical psychopathology. I think what happened is that William Parsons um, took the English mistranslation of the, the original French mystical psychopath uh, psychophysiology and then turned this entire argument. The whole book is based on the idea that from Roland's kind of the precursor to many of the 20th century psychoanalytic efforts to um, take mysticism seriously, but still from a psychoanalytic standpoint. So Sudhir Kakar and a number of other people, he has a, a number of people in mind. And so what I argue in my, in my chapter is actually that Roland is doing something much more radical than that. He's not favoring a non-reductive psychoanalytic approach to mystical experience, but he's actually critiquing psychoanalysis from a mystical standpoint. So that's the kind of original um, critical thrust of my chapter. 
So rather than the mystic needing to be on the couch of the psychoanalyst, the psychoanalyst needs to um, get their feet wet in the oceanic. That's right. So, that's right. So so um, may I ask you uh, about your path? I noticed that you're also, in addition to being a scholar and an academic, you're also a renunciant. You're a Swami. Is that correct? Would you mind telling us a little bit about that path? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know if you can tell from my accent, but I'm actually from the U.S. So I was born and raised in Boston. Welcome to the Global Village. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and educated also in the West, uh, Berkeley, Oxford, and Germany. Um, but just sort of within one semester of my Ph.D. program at Berkeley, I kind of had this this conviction came to me. It wasn't like I met some inspiring. You were called. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain these things. Of course, Hindu will say that you know I had some scholars from a previous life, but in any case, whatever the reason, um, I just felt you know I'm good. I need to finish my PhD and then I need to move to India and become a sannyasi. <laughs> That's just I was. It was very clear in my mind that I didn't have doubts about it. nothing but a calling. From the inner world or the inner yeah. life could possibly yeah, I mean, I'll, possess I'll, someone I'll, to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I did read the Bhagavad Gita. Um, at the time, I didn't know Sanskrit. I learned Sanskrit only in my fifth year of my PhD program at Berkeley. But um, before that, I read Sri Aurobindo's English translation of the Gita. And I just, there's something that deeply resonated with me this idea that I should renounce lust and greed for the aim of uh, attaining the highest goal of life um, and attaining a certain transcendental peace. And so, and so you, so so you, um, you are officially a sannyasi affiliated with Ramakrishna Mission. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I'll share that around the age of I think twenty three, twenty four ish, something popped in my being, and I very seriously considered renouncing. <laughs> that was the plan, actually. <laughs> I had shaved my head and everything, and then uh, I found my teacher around that time, and and realized that uh, uh, there was a different path for me. Someone has to do podcasts, I suppose. Yeah, yeah right. Has a But the question, and also, and also just for those listening, there, there, there are various philosophies, whether through Nishkam, Karma Yoga, or um, maybe a more tantric ideology, where, mm-hmm. where um, there are those who, who also would like to, as you say, combat lust and greed, etc., uh, and yet not have the courage to renounce, for example, or the opportunity and maybe working that out in the world. What I'm very interested in is, oh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier. You know, I was talking to undergrads the other day, and... Oh, no, it was on this podcast, actually, on white utopias. And, and religion in the West almost always means Abrahamic religion. It, it means a specific kind of religion. And, and the deconstruction of religion is the go-to place isn't the oceanic or the mystical experience. And so there are a lot of people who identify as spiritual but not religious, but they'll engage in their Buddhist practices. So there's this interesting... Um, there's this interesting presentation, understanding of what religion is in the yeah, West. I think that's right. And I think, I think you're right. That, I mean, I think that's especially true in the U.S., where religion has an especially bad name. Um, it's almost like religion means those crazy fundamentalists who are into kind of speaking in tongues and getting into emotional crazies. Yeah. And, you know. the, word, the word religion means you're in part of the cult of Yahweh, essentially. Like, that's that's right. what it means in the West. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that's um, the US. You know, what I would like to ask you, part of the reason why I asked you to sh- to talk a little bit about your path is because, you know, even in the publication, in the um, in your description, you also use your initiate designation, Swami Medhananda. And so part of what I'd like to hear about is um, 
you know, we often talk about this this etic versus emic paradigm and, and, and scholarship versus practice. And obviously, anybody who's listening to this podcast is well aware that there are many who can do both. Um, perhaps even the host of the podcast, doing quick nudge nudge. But um, can you tell us a bit about that tension? Or what is it like for you being a practitioner, possibly or perhaps having an experiential uh, dimension of Vedanta? And then also being a scholar who's trying to understand it intellectually and, and, and even trying to sort of curate various voices for this handbook. Is there a tension there or is that just my presumption? It's a great question. You know, in my mind, uh, I, I, I see it less as a tension and more as a fruitful source of kind of energy. And um, it brings a kind of creative tension. It creates tension, also a kind of urgency to the work I'm doing. So, just to give you an example, so for instance, <clears throat> before I moved, I moved to India. I, I got my PhD in 2009 in May, um, and three months later in September, I flew out to India. I got a one-way ticket and I just came to India. Um, but before that, I was initiated into the Ramakrishna tradition by receiving a mantra from a very senior Swami, who was uh, the head of this our Hollywood ashrama. His name is Swami Swahananda, and he initiated me. And then I told him, I'm going to go to India and become a monk there. And he said, okay, great. Then you can, you know, we have some colleges and there's a new university. You can teach at one of those places. And at the time, I was so disenchanted with academia that I told him, I said, you know, I'd rather sweep floors than do academic work. And I had this idea that, you know, my ego was bound up with my academic work. So, you know, the most spiritual path for me is just doing something completely non-academic. And he just laughed. I mean, with that wisdom that you get from being 90 years old, you know, he just kind of, all right, you'll find your path. The, the, the lotus needs the mud, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, amazingly, just with, I, he was so kind of liberal. So he didn't say anything, but on my own, within a few months of being in India, I, I was just through different circumstances, I was invited to come to Vivekananda University, which is where I've been for 10 years. And the vice chancellor just said, you know what, just come as our guest and stay for a week and see how you like it. And when, when I stayed for that week, something just clicked. And I, what, what I felt was, I said, you know, I thought to myself, I said, I have spent in my entire adult life deeply studying um, philosophy and literary theory and criticism, studying books and studying Sanskrit at Berkeley and German. Should I just throw that all away? And, you know, is that, was that all just a waste of time? Or... Can I sort of harness that as a source of energy and actually kind of um, use that for a spiritual purpose? And then I thought, I'm in a unique position to do that. There's one thing about Indian culture, especially, is that most of the so-called brightest minds tend to go into science subjects. It's an unfortunate kind of empirical fact in India, because in 10th grade, there's this, what's this thing called Madhyamika. And if you do really well on the exam, your parents more or less force you to go into the sciences. And even if you're not forced, it's kind of very prestigious. And so the best people tend to go in the sciences. Humanities get short-shrifted in Indian culture. So I, because I was educated in the West, there was, I didn't have that kind of bias. Except my dad really was kind of pushing me into the sciences, but I ignored him, fortunately. I'm so a I rebel too. Yeah. So I, so I studied philosophy, and then I thought to myself, you know what? Because I studied philosophy... I can easily, I can, I can do my academic research on Ramakrishna, on Vivekananda, on, on Vedanta. What, what, what bet, how, what's a better use of my time than, you know, thinking deeply about my own spiritual tradition and in a, in a rigorous way or as rigorous way as I can. 
And so to me, from the very beginning, I actually saw this emic edict thing as a kind of advantage, you know, that I have a kind of insider's understanding of the tradition. You have a dual citizenship. That's right. But with scholarly training and background to kind of try to make it rigorous. And, you know, another thing is, I'm glad that you brought up this insider-outsider emic edict thing, because I'm actually, I just finished a book on, the tentative title is Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. And I'm thinking of adding a paragraph at the very end, exactly addressing this Evic Edic issue. Because if you read some of the scholarship on Vivekananda and on Ramakrishna, there are a lot of, especially Western scholars, not just Western scholars, it's not fair. I mean, even a lot of uh, Indian scholars, they bring up this issue and they say that, you know, these Ramakrishna monks, they only write hagiography. They use the word hagiography. They say, you know, when they talk about Vivekananda and Ramakrishna, they're also biased. They only just, they, they only praise them. You know, there's no critical approach. There's, they don't adopt a scholarly approach, but we outsiders, we scholars, you know, we're rigorous. We see things objectively. So this idea that the, the edict approach is somehow objective, um, third person, unbiased, um, and that the, the insider approach is hopelessly subjective or biased or hagiographic. And so I was thinking of adding a paragraph to the very end of my introduction saying, you know, where are you going to place me in that? <laughs> you know, am I edic? Am I am I my emic? Or am I both? And is that a problem or is that a virtue? Or is that potentially from a hermeneutic standpoint? Um, and so I, I want to say that that actually, you know, because Gautama, for instance, um, he has this idea of the fusion of horizons. So when you're interpreting a text, you want to try to achieve this kind of fusion of horizons between your own horizon and the horizon of the author of the text or the text itself. And, you know, in order to achieve that fusion, one really essential thing is inhabiting the sensibility of the author or the kind of uh, worldview embodied in that text. So there, the insider has a unique advantage, right? At the same time, another thing that Gautamer emphasizes is the need to kind of, for, for the interpreter of a text, to try to bracket, to become aware of, and to the, to the fullest extent as possible, and to bracket his or her own biases, pre- preconceptions, presuppositions that might distort his or her understanding of the text. So what he called po'utaila, so uh, prejudgments, that would be the literal translation. Some people translate it as prejudices. Um, so there you can, you can bring, you know, because I have scholarly background, I also try to kind of bring my scholarly uh, tools to bear to become, try to become self-aware and to avoid the kind of um, the dangers of eisegesis or, you know, imposing my own views onto the text. So I think What's there's a, a real value in combining the e-mechanetic approaches. Well, it's sort of, I, I feel that for me personally, my, 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 my life, my, my, my career, most of my enterprises walk that line between these two worlds. And so uh, for me, the, the teaching, the vast majority of the teaching and thinking I do about Hinduism, Hindu studies is in the space of this podcast where it's overarchingly an etic perspective because in my view as citizens of the globe, the etic perspective is the only one whereby we can all stand together for the, to, to, to examine something. That doesn't mean that one can also have a direct experience or an emic perspective. And, and I think that uh, if, you, if, if you do it well, those two perspectives very richly, richly inform each other such that even when teaching undergrads, the, the, the stories and the anecdotes and the data that comes from the students themselves and their own experience that we can now all look at 
from the outside it only enriches our perspective. Um, and also, there, it's a different enterprise, right? The, the, the production of empirical knowledge is a very different enterprise from the ascent of consciousness or, or, or the pursuit of moksha, or however one wants to. That's absolutely right. And I, I would just add that, you know, there's a lot of controversy about certain um, scholarly approaches to um, Hindu figures and Hindu texts. So, you know, some of the scholars that are controversial or are stirring up controversy are Wendy Doniger, uh, Sheldon Pollock, and others. Um, Jeffrey Kripal, who wrote a book called Kali's, called Kali's Child, claiming that um, Sri Ramakrishna's mystical experiences were rooted in a certain kind of homoeroticism or repressed homosexuality um, or homoeroticism. And there was an uproar about that, that book, for instance. And um, part of the pushback he was getting was about how he, he, because he was bringing to bear a Freudian psychoanalytic framework on a Hindu 19th century. Hindu saint, mystic, there's this question of, I mean, is that just, you know, is that is that kind of a priori met methodology itself falsifying the object of study? Um, so again, I would say another potential advantage of having an emic understanding of a tradition is that you can avoid those, the dangers of kind of bringing in frameworks that are completely foreign to the object of, of your study. You know, um, I'm not necessarily saying that he is guilty of that, but I'm using him as just an example of, of one of the potential dangers. May I share my favorite analogy, analog to the situation? Yes. Uh, so for me, well, there's two or three. Well, there's three that I use, hmm, that I that I recycle in various settings. But for the sake of, of, of this, my favorite analogy is of uh, food where there are nutritionists and there are chefs, right? And in preparing food, one needs to understand nutrition and, and macronutrients and, and something about biology or the needs of human beings in an empirical objective way. But that's not the taste of food. And so we can talk about food and, and, and certainly the chef has to be cognizant of what's happening. Uh, but the taste of the food is something very personal and subjective. And one can't understand what vanilla tastes like unless one has tasted it. Now, obviously, we are preparing food and we're talking about nutrition. That's what we can do together, especially in public education, um, public discourse. However, we can't simply reduce people's experience of food to something uh, some for, something hopelessly subjective or, or, or hallucinated or, or conjured in some way, right? There's, this, is, this is the tension. I mean, that's kind of my favorite analogy for it. That's a great way to put it, yeah, thanks. What, um, what do you hope most that people will take away uh, from perusing this handbook? Again, a good question. I, I, maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to leave that open, I guess. But um, one of the things, I really think that it's, it's a shame that for too long, both in India and in the West, both in the popular imagination and even among some scholars, especially in scholars outside of, specialist fields, like outside of religious studies and Indian philosophy. But all too often, Vedanta is equated with Advaita Vedanta. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways of this handbook should be that that's a, that's a huge mistake. Um, the tradition of Vedanta is incredibly philosophically rich, but also incredibly diverse and internally variegated. Um, and we're doing an injustice to the tradition when we reduce it to Advaita Vedanta. Uh, so that's one of the main takeaways. Um, there are a number of other ones, but yeah. 
I can I make a quick footnote in my experience? So most of my work is on uh, uh, narrative, Sanskrit narrative. So uh, the Devi Mahatmya, the epics, the Puranas, um, philosophy, of course, informs my understanding of Hinduism, even much of my own wheelings and dealings. Um, but I hadn't really taught in this space of philosophy, taught students learning philosophy until um, the OCHS fairly recently. And, you know, I can sort of reflect back that I've noticed that, that from, for many students, many learners, particularly from a Western perspective, that is the, that's the apex of, 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 of really, uh, of Vedanta, of, of Hinduism, of India. It's like Advaita Vedanta is the crown jewel of creation. Um, and it, it's been, um, for many of them, they're very open to look at other traditions. And for a couple of them, it's, it's, I've noticed that no matter what else we look at, it's being compared to Advaita Vedanta. It's internalized somehow. It's, it, it fascinates me, actually. It's deeply ingrained. And, you know, there are different reasons for that. If you looked at the introduction of my handbook, I, I, I give some of the historical reasons for that. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually. If you look at the history of scholarship on Vedanta, what you find is that the earliest scholars of Vedanta in India were Western, especially Christian missionaries. And so it was part of their strategic agenda to do this kind of conflation. So they would conflate Hinduism as such with Vedanta and then equate Vedanta with Advaita Vedanta. Why? Because, so for instance, um, a, a Jesuit father from many centuries ago, one of the first uh, missionaries in India, he was also a great scholar of Sanskrit and Vedanta. And he, would, he, he said that Hinduism teaches the Luciferian doctrine that we are one with God, which is just sheer blasphemy. And you know, We need to educate these benighted Hindus about the truth that they're, you know, they're being deluded and deceived by this false path, and that we Christians have the duty to correct them and to teach them the saving religion of Christianity. So one of the reasons is this very interesting and obviously kind of problematic ideological reason for you know the emphasis on Advaita Vedanta. They're equating Hinduism with Advaita Vedanta in order to discredit it and to justify Christian missionary efforts. Now, fast forwarding to contemporary times. I think that there's another very, very different reason why Advaita Vedanta is, is extraordinarily popular throughout the world, especially in the West. Many people like saying that Advaita Vedanta, unlike theistic religions, is somehow more rational. And I, I think that's you know questionable and it's worth debating. I, I certainly don't think it should be taken for granted, but it is a sort of common assumption. And also the the um, you know let's just shear away karma and rebirth, and then we have this uh, this this bot religion that we can you know use for computer programming or vice versa. That's right. But, that's right. It's good. Yeah. The same thing. That's the same thing is true of yoga. The way that the West has co-opted yoga, and you know some monks in our order they jokingly say they call it. Sometimes they of course taught Ashtanga yoga, which is the eight limbed yoga, starting with yama and yama, so ethical practices and brahmacharya celibacy, and he says. The West teaches yoga as if it's Shastanga yoga, it's a sixth limb yoga. They just drop out the ethical and spiritual practices and you end up with just asanas. Or they really just focus on a third anga, which is just asanas, right? But uh, Eka, Ekanga yoga. Yeah, Ekanga yoga. And then Buddhism, there's a very interesting, I mean, there are lots of interesting debates about um, whether it's legitimate and fruitful or whether you're not doing a kind of injustice to Buddhism by kind of stripping away what many Western scholars think are the more problematic metaphysical elements of Buddhism, like 
the belief in devatas, so the belief in minor deities, the belief in rebirth, and just take, you know, the core of the Four Noble Truths and kind of, so Stephen Batchelor is one of many scholars who kind of advocate that kind of separation. But yeah, I, I, as, I, as I think you do, I think oh, you yeah. agree with that. It's so, it's so rich. It's so, there, there are a variety of individuals who are drawn to other paths who may have sort of more of a buffet than a prefix sort of um, uh, relationship to, to paths. And, um, you know, one can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's it's just so fascinating to me. The um, it's really difficult to navigate the line between etic and emic. And and one thing I say when I talk to people is that it's it's very it's relatively easy to be uh, critical and skeptical and then sort of in that safe, solely rational mode. And then for some, it's it's it seems relatively uh, easy or intuitive to just dismiss that and everything is possible and everything is believable and. You know, you know, the grandeur of God is everywhere and all we need is love. Yay, hurrah. And really, you know, both of these extremes seem so, um, uh, both are extremes, but they don't really accord with life where obviously science is the arbiter of the outer world. Clearly, obviously empiricism is of tremendous value, but obviously humans have so much going on to them that we can't begin to begin to understand. And clearly um, the world's religions uh, is a rich repository of experiences that um, that say Romain Roland is talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, if you don't mind, I, mean, I, I don't want to plug my own contributions to the handbook. Uh, 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 just so you know, plugging the handbook is why you're here. So I yeah, don't no, mind. That's true, but I, I, I'm <laughs> about plugging mine, especially. But uh, I, I let me you. absolve you. I used yeah. to be a Catholic priest in a previous life. Let me absolve you of your Catholic guilt. You're good. Thank Go. You. All right. Well, let me just briefly mention though that my the other chapter that I, I contributed to the handbook is on Sri Aurobindo's inter- interpretation of the Isha Upanishad, and the reason why I bring it up in this context is that he is, I think, one of the best examples of this kind of of this really subtle and creative thinker who straddles the border between the emic and the edic. Um, and I discussed that in the first or second section of that chapter where I, I talk about how he's, he, he has a, a, he wrote an essay called The Interpretation of Scripture, where he says, you need to combine uh, a kind of philological slash scholarly approach to these scriptures, which focuses on the etymological meaning of words, historical context, all, all the kind of you know phil- philological tools that modern scholars use and bring to bear on texts, and while also combining that philological approach with a spiritual receptivity to these scriptures, um, and ideally, and this is something that he was in a unique position to do because he was a yogi and also you know not just a scholar but a yogi, but also try to inhabit the text from a spiritual standpoint and to try to share. The spiritual experiences that are conveyed in in those Upanishads or in the in the Gita, um, so he's a very good example of, of somebody who who really straddles that that middle middle ground between these two extremes. And and the I think the, uh, the key there is that to, to to use the analogy of the nutritionist and the chef. Nutritionists may be excellent at what they do, but not have a great palate at all. Um, the, 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 like uh, how, how do the tone deaf uh, orchestrate music maybe a lot of music theory how did the prepubescent you know understand something orgasmic for example like how it's beyond the realm of the experience of some people to have these experiences and so it's easily dismissed or explained away or reduced and one of my favorite kind of sound bites or catchphrases is, is rigor without like reductionism like you can be rigorous yeah and still leave space 
or something that's that, that, that's a that, nice three word kind of um explanation of my ideal actually as a scholar yeah rigor without great so you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, rigor without reductionism trademark <laughs> no it's 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 no no no. you won't steal it it's my service it's my seva it's this is what we're doing this is what we need to do this is this is the vision of of, of hindu studies this is this is uh education this you know when undergrads come to to, to classes of course they understand for the most part that it's not priest training or a practice but 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 the reductionism is what just really kind of messes with a lot of them they understand that this is an academic paradigm yeah but I, my sense is many learners, continuing studies and 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 um, undergrads, they're really put off by the reductionism mm-hmm. because they understand that this stuff means much more to the people that they know and that they're related to and that they see than can begin to be conveyed in sort of a solely historical approach, for example, right? And so there's this disjunction yeah. there. No, I mean, you know, this is good because it's also bringing, I mean, I'm in this, as I said, a kind of unique position because I'm in, I'm in an order, a monastic order. Um, and at the same time, I'm a practicing scholar. And, you know, I actually share the frustrations of both sides in a way, which is interesting, right? So on the one hand, I deeply sympathize with and I agree with the criticisms of those kind of purely edict scholars, kind of poo-poo insiders and, um, yeah, bring to bear all sorts of psychoanalytic ideas on, on, on the Hindu figures. But at the same time, I sometimes, you know, when I'm interacting with monks, I sometimes get frustrated with the lack of rigor and where we're the kind of sometimes too quick to kind of uncritically um, accept certain stories about the lives of Ramakrishna or Vivekananda or their teachings. And, you know, um, so I push back on both sides in a way. And, I, and, you know, I think that rigor without reduction is really great way to put what I'm really striving for, which I think is a good corrective to both sides. On the one hand, this kind of tendency among some insiders to um, toward kind of uncritical um, faith or just kind of, you know, um, not thinking deeply enough or rigorously enough. And on the other hand, the historicists who kind of um, lack that fusion of horizons aspect of their hermeneutic approach. Um, so the middle ground, I think, is what we've 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 uh, our paths thus far have landed on um, on 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 opposite ends of 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 the sannyasi uh, line. However, there's a great deal of cross pollination there, and that um, some may describe some of my qualities as ascetic, and certainly uh, you are a bona fide scholar. Um, 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 so it's 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 interesting because when I'm among practitioners, you know, my job is to help teach something, you know, like empirical and like, what can you know about the text? You know, how is the text composed or what's, uh, what epoch of Hinduism is this text emerging from? What's it trying to accomplish? And then um, <laughs> among scholars, it's, you know, you push back a little bit the other way. If they're a little bit on the reductionist side, like how, how do we know? Like how uh, it's convenient to take for its approach. It really is. Your critical thinking likes it a lot. It, it doesn't accord with so many of the people you meet. And what they what they report, what they experience, it doesn't accord with one's own experiences, and so where's the line? And it's it's a constant dialectic. But I, for me, I think it's important to always maintain and um, always maintain the rigor that we're always teaching in the public space from an etic paradigm without an agenda, whatever religion we're teaching. But we can't make claims on what we can't know to be true or not true, absolutely. You know, uh, we, 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 there, there certainly are things that can't be measured by science. 
clearly yeah. related to the human experience. And, and we need to be very honest about that. And isn't that the project of the humanities? When did the humanities become art science, right? Mm-hmm. And that's very crucial. Enough of my pontificating for one day. Is there anything else about the book you wanted to touch on before, um, before we close for today? No, I think that uh, we covered most of the bases. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So for those of you listening, we have been talking about the brand new Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta. We have been talking with its editor, um, Ayan Maharaj, who also is uh, known as Swami Medananda. And it is by virtue of his dual citizenship that we've had this uh, fascinating exchange. Um, Until next time, uh, stay safe. Uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the interplay between insider and outsider perspectives. Thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun.